So kind of a heavy topic tonight, making friends with death is what I've called the topic. Um, and, and first of all, I'd just like to frame the topic by, by talking a little about how our current society looks at or doesn't look at death um, by drawing a comparison to 200 years ago. You know, life 200 years ago in America, people died all the time. You know, a cup, it would not be unusual at all for a married couple to have, say, 15 children. Maybe two or three would live to adulthood, you know. And, and we forget now that each one of those children's deaths, that was a painful, traumatic thing for those people, you know. Uh, people died all the time in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s. You know, for someone to get to 50 or 60, like they were doing really good, you know. I mean, anytime anyone got any kind of illness or suffered a traumatic injury, that, that was pretty much it, you know. Um, and really, life expectancy 200 years ago hadn't really changed much since the Middle Ages, since Roman times, since antiquity. Um, we, I think in some sense, we underestimate how, how wide-sweeping the miracle of modern medicine is. You know, I mean, we've, you know, so many diseases have been eradicated. No one gets polio or smallpox anymore, you know. You break a bone, you know, it's instantly set. You know, you get a gash, they instantly stitch it up, you know. Um, and now it's just routine that, People live into their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And you would think, given this comparison, that people would be astonishingly grateful for that. That it would be celebratory. Like if people 200 years ago could look at this situation, they'd say, oh my God, how lucky are those people? And yet the sad thing is we completely take it for granted. You know, and in fact, go to the other extreme of, in some sense, ignoring death. You know, in some sense, we live in the first time in human history in which it was even possible for humans to ignore death. You know, and there's something very interesting about that. And I think part of the ignoring is actually the way we tokenize it. You know, so say if an airplane crashes, you know, that's horrible. A lot of people die and then that gets its 15 minutes of fame and then we move on, you know. And it, it always strikes me, like, we give so much attention, say, say if an airplane crashes and 300 people die, I mean, that, that's a tragedy, that's horrible. But we give so much attention to that and ignore the fact that thousands of people die every single day on the highways. Like, that just goes unmentioned and unnoticed. You know, and that's just, there's nothing anyone can do about that. That's just a fact of life, you know. But we don't even look at that. You know, but the 300 people on the airplane, that's horrible. You know, that catches our attention, you know. So the, the title of this topic, Making Friends with Death, I, I admit I was being a little bit almost provocative in, uh, in selecting this title. Um, and, and as I reflected on it more and more, to some extent, I think the title's a little bit inaccurate because, of course, technically a, a friend is a meeting of equals and there's no way that I or anyone else is the equal of death. Um, a, a more accurate title might be intimacy with death. Um, 
And it's a, it's a funny idea because, of course, when you hear it, at least from a conventional point of view, either it sounds ghoulish, like the person who collects, you know, pictures of, you know, gory pictures of accidents or something like that, or a person who is intent on self-harm, you know, like someone's close to suicide, they might be getting into a frame of mind, well, death isn't so bad, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, and neither one of those is what I'm talking about. So to begin, I, I'll just start with the basics. None of us have a guarantee that a week from now we'll be alive. You know, if I were a betting man, and I, I would bet a large sum of money that all of us are still going to be alive a week from now. In other words, the, the, the statistical odds are pretty good, but none of us are guaranteed. None of us really know when our last day will come. You know, and often, you know, it's not often that, that relatively young, healthy people die. But when they do, it's often in sudden, catastrophic, unexpected ways. You know, vehicle accidents and that sort of thing. You know, none of us really know. And, and part of what I'm talking about, this intimacy of death, is not just that head knowledge. You know, the head knowledge, you know, it's kind of shocking, but then we forget about it. We move on with our life. Um, it's almost more about developing a visceral sense of one's mortality. And as, as strange as this sounds, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom that comes from cultivating this relationship with death. Um, you know, of course, in the West, it was, it was typical monk for, say, for monks to sleep every night in their coffin. That was the way that they were they were getting used to the idea of death. Um, and it was training for, for Buddhist monks in the East, uh, especially in Theravada Buddhism, they'd send the young monks to the charnel grounds to meditate. So just meditate watching dead bodies decompose, you know. And that was just part of their training. You know, that's a teaching on impermanence. So... What is the value of having this awareness of death? Well, think about it. All of us have, you know, there are some good habits that we all enact, and we're, we're good about enacting them. And there are other good habits that we kind of know, you know, really, I should be doing that, you know, but I'm not doing it. Really, if my life were totally together, I'd be doing this and this, and I'm not doing that yet, you know. We may even have a story someday, when I get my act together, then I'll be doing these good things. You know, what if I don't get that someday? You know, there's a kind of, you might say, an urgency, not a panicked urgency, but kind of a, a, a quiet, almost mindful urgency that comes with the awareness of death. The awareness of, you know, I may not have time. You know, just think about today. Suppose today were your last day. Would you be happy with today? as your last day, you know? And what would it mean to live your life so that every single day you'd be happy with as if it were your last day, you know? I'm gonna read a, a Zen story. Suyo, the disciple of Hakuin, Hakuin was a was a towering Zen figure in the, the 17th, the 18th century in Japan. 
So Suio was a disciple of Hakuin, and Suio was a good teacher. During one summer seclusion period, a pupil came to him from a southern island in Japan. Suio gave him the koan, hear the sound of one hand clapping. The pupil remained three years but could not pass this test. One night he came to tears to Suio. I must return to the south in shame and embarrassment, for I cannot solve the problem. Wait one more week and meditate constantly, advised Suiwo. Still no enlightenment came to the pupil. Try another week, said Suiwo. The pupil obeyed in vain. Still another week. Yet this was of no avail. In despair, the student begged to be released, but Suiwo requested a meditation of five days. They were without results. Then he said, meditate for three days longer, and if you fail enlightenment, you had better kill yourself. On the second day, the pupil was enlightened. And you have to understand, in, in Japanese culture, especially in very traditional Japanese culture, it was more of a, it, it sounds a little weird to our, our modern ears, it was more understood that in a shameful situation, one, one might, con, one might um, uh, conduct a ritual suicide. You know, certainly you know, someone who lost a battle or something like that would, would conduct a ritual suicide. Um, so within the context, it isn't, it isn't, you know, I realize it sounds a bit odd for the Zen master to be saying something like that, but that was the, that's the context. But the point is there's something, um, there's a kind of immediacy to death that, um, almost gives, gives a sense of like no time for BS, you know, like what really matters, um, and there's also, you might say, an uncompromising quality toward death. You know, we love to compromise. We love to make excuses. We love to make bargains. You know, we make all these bargains with ourselves. You know, if I do this good thing and this good thing, I can, I can let myself go with this. I can let myself off the hook with that. You know, we love doing stuff like that. Um, death is a harsh teacher. It's like, if you really, if this were really your last few days on earth, are you going to let yourself be sloppy like that? Or are you going to live the way that you know you should live? You know, and it doesn't mean not giving ourselves a rest. Of course, rest and relaxation is part of the path. But are we disciplined about our rest or are we sloppy and indulgent about our rest? You know. And so that's one part of awareness of death, how it informs the, you might say, the urgency of one's own discipline. A whole other side of it is how we relate to others. You know, it's often a, an exercise in a meditation uh, retreat. You know, suppose an angel comes to you and says, a week from now, someone dear to you will die. And you don't know who that is. You know, imagine how caring you would be to each and every person in your life. Imagine how carefully you would look at each face. Imagine how intently you would listen to each voice. Imagine how you would just drink in everyone's presence, not knowing if you're going to lose that person. You know? And of course, you know, we're lucky. There's not an angel hitman coming to visit us, knock off one of our friends. But the question is, why aren't we attentive to the people we care about at that level? Why aren't we treasuring each moment with the people we care about. Um, there's a way that the awareness of death and, and the holding that awareness that the person I care about is not going to be here forever 
um, it gives a tremendous quality of preciousness to each moment. Each moment of authentic connection with somebody is something precious and irreplaceable, you know? And even if I'm going to see that person again, there's something unique and precious about that particular moment, you know? There's, there's, you know, you might say it's the, the polar opposite of taking anyone or anything for granted. Um, you know, I mean, the, I think an, an excellent, an excellent exercise to, uh, you know, if you feel yourself ever starting to take anyone dear in your life for granted, is just take five minutes to imagine how, how impactful it would be if that person suddenly died, you know, and how grateful you are to still, to still have them, you know. There's a way that ultimately we cannot say a full yes to life unless we're saying yes to our own mortality and a yes to death. Um, And I think that part of the gift of realizing that our time is is limited and uncertain is, um, you know, there's no excuse to hold back. There's no there's no time for the well. I'm not sure if I can, you know, like all the the whiny sort of stuff that we have about how we're not living out our true purpose. But, you know, it'll be hard. It'll be difficult. You know, like that sort of thing. There's there's something there's a powerful impetus about you know this is your time, you know eat the ice cream before it melts kind of thing. Um, I want to read you a poem, which I I think is a powerful expression of what it means to be intimate with death. And this is a poem, of course, by Mary Oliver, who is just an astonishing poet, no longer with us, but an astonishing American poet called When Death Comes. When death comes, like a hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through that door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and look upon time as no more than an idea, and consider eternity as another possibility. And think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence. And each body a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth. When it's all over, I want to say I was a bride married to amazement. I was a bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I've made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. So at this point, I'll, I'll share the quote sheet. First, I'll share it with the Zoomies.
My high school teacher, so I always have handouts. So I have the Mary Oliver poem, which is certainly worth rereading and re-reflecting on the quote sheet. Then from Sir Francis Bacon, founder of the scientific method, an extraordinary individual himself. Death is a friend of ours, and he that is not ready to entertain him is not at home. From Dog Hammarskjöld, that astonishing man. In the last analysis, it is our conception of death which decides our answers to all the questions that life puts to us. Psychologist Leo Buscaglia said, death is a challenge. It tells us not to waste time. It tells us to tell each other right now that we love each other. Carlos Castaneda said, death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you. It always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture toward you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just catch the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Brother David Stendhal Ross, Ross too, who himself is uh, still with us, very old, It isn't primarily a practice of thinking of one's last hour or death as a physical phenomena. It is seeing every moment of life against the horizon of death, a challenge to incorporate that awareness of dying into every moment so as to become more fully alive. Antonio de Mello says, one of your American authors put it so well. He said, awakening is the death of your belief in injustice and tragedy. The end of the world for a caterpillar is a butterfly for the master. Death is resurrection. We're not talking about some resurrection that will happen, but one that is happening right now. If you would die to the past, if you would die to every minute, you you would be the person who is fully alive because a fully alive person is one who is full of death. We're always dying to things. We're always shedding everything in order to be fully alive and resurrected at every moment. Another quote from Mary Oliver from another poem. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Jack Cornfield says, quite simply, the trouble is that you think you have time. Eckhart Tolle says, death is the stripping away of all that is not you. Steve Jobs, in his his famous commencement speech, said, no one wants to die. Even the people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is how it should be. Because death is likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you, but someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but, but it is quite true. Elizabeth Mattis Namgyal says, 
I have a personal koan. How do we live a life that we can't hold on to? How do we live with the fact that the moment we're born, we're closer to death? When we fall in love, we're signing up for grief. How do we reconcile that gain always ends in loss, gathering and separation? And Caitlin Doherty, in a, in a book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, and this is actually Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, it's, it's a reference to the experience of being at a crematory where bodies are burned. Accepting death doesn't mean that you would be devastated when someone you love dies. It means you will be able to focus your grief unburdened by the bigger existential questions. Why do people die? Why is this happening to me? Death isn't happening to you. Death is happening to all of us.